Welcome to Curve Beam Connect. Listen in monthly as we talk with doctors and experts in the field discussing innovations and insights into orthopedic imaging. Welcome to the Curve Beam Connect podcast, where we give doctors, patients, and anyone interested in healthcare and technology a look into how our solutions are changing medicine. I'm your host, Vinti Singh, Director of Marketing here at Curve Beam. This episode, we are sitting down with Studi Singh, Director of R&D Strategy at Curvebeam, to discuss Curvebeam's foray into artificial intelligence. Studi has a background in mechanical engineering. Prior to joining Curvebeam, she worked at Boeing as a flight test engineer. Since coming on board, she has been involved in R&D for several of our products and is often in the field working directly with our customers. Welcome, Studi. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's exciting to be here. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but this is my first time being on one. So this is fun. Great. Well, we're very excited to hear your insights today. So, Sudi, we both attended the Radiological Society of North America annual meeting for about seven years now. And it seems like the presence of AI has been increasing to the point where last November there was almost a mini conference and exhibit hall within the larger conference dedicated to just AI. What is your perspective of where AI is in radiology in the present day? Is it still experimental or are we seeing AI being used in everyday clinical medicine? It's definitely past the experimental phase and being used in everyday clinical medicine. There are a whole bunch of products that have been FDA cleared. And uh, actually before this podcast, I was doing some research and just within the last three or four months, there's a whole host of products that have received clearance. Um, I can talk about a few of them. Um, So as far as analyzing images um, and detecting, automatically detecting features in images, there's an FDA approved system to look at images of the brain and detect um, a type of stroke that that is that results from a blockage in one of the major arteries of the brain. Mm-hmm. There is approved software to measure lung lung um, to segment the lungs and measure lung lesions. Um, there is an FDA cleared uh, breast cancer diagnosis system that analyzes breast images and gives a prediction based on that. Um, one thing that I thought was uh, pretty cool that has also been approved recently is a um, it's the first artificial intelligence powered software designed to assist and guide medical professionals without specialized training through the steps of a cardiac ultrasound. So it's basically like a real time co-pilot during an echocardiogram and it shows the user how to maneuver the ultrasound probe and provides feedback on the image quality so that someone who's not an expert in this can help screen or help um, like in a high volume situation, um, you can have a registered nurse who can uh, do this type of procedure without all the formal training. So it's enabling um, it's enabling um, more a farther reach for professionals to uh, use to learn new skills and use new skills without having the formal probably long process of training. Also in um, CT scanning, one place where AI is big is in the 3D image reconstruction. Um, I've seen a lot of 
AI algorithms that help reduce noise and improve the image quality of reconstructed images. Also at this, uh, when there was basically a separate conference hall for AI at RSNA this year, um, Google and Microsoft and AWS, Amazon Web Services, they've been present at the conference before, but this year I saw that they all, each one of them had a big booth and that was really saying something because um, you know, not to glorify these tech companies as the end all be all, but you can't, you've got to admit that when Google, Microsoft and AWS are showing up, they're really seeing a potential. They're trying to get um, the radiologists or the uh, radiology vendors to use their technology um, and their services to power their AI. So the fact that all the, the kind of the big guys are all here is showing that um, they see a massive global potential and a massive a global customer base in this area. So uh, that to me was also a big signal that this is really big now. Um, but one thing I will say is I was looking at, you know, the more specific clinical applications and I saw a lot of applications related to heart, lung, and brain. Um, I was looking for what was there in terms of AI for orthopedics um, and then specifically extremities. And I did not see too much. The focus really was on the things like the heart and the brain. And so that shows that even though AI is really here and is being used, uh, the applications that have been the biggest focus so far, the ones that are, I guess, uh, you could be considered critical, more critical to life and probably have a lot of the money coming into like a heart surgery compared to an orthopedic surgery. Uh, there's a difference in cost there. So those have been the focus. So what's exciting is that um, there's been so much work in AI and so much that we can build upon, but doing it in orthopedics, specifically extremities, it's still a, a relatively new area there. So what we're doing is uh, a new frontier. And uh, so it's that's very exciting too. So that's interesting that at RSNA, which is one of the major radiology conferences, in the world, orthopedics and weren't so much of a focus. Uh, but where you sit, where we are positioned in this industry, you have a little bit more insight into how AI is specifically being used in orthopedics. And can you talk about uh, some of the projects that you are aware of? And in your opinion, where do you think the major utilization of AI is going to be in orthopedics? Sure. Um, one thing we're definitely aware of is um, robotic, robot-assisted surgery for orthopedics, uh, where you can do implant, uh, for example, a knee replacement using robotic surgery, which is just always going to be more accurate than a human surgeon, um, eliminating that human error. Uh, that's kind of another branch of AI where I've seen it in orthopedics. Going backtracking from there, these robotic surgeries often involve custom-designed implants and fixtures, and uh, those can be created using um, scans from a device like ours, um, seeing how the anatomy looks in 3D in a weight-bearing position and using that information to design a custom implant. There could, uh, I think there's potential for AI in designing the implant itself. Um, but again, starting with the image, backtracking and starting with the image, um, being able to go from an image of pixels into um, 
a meaningful um, representation of what's in that information. Um, I think that involves AI. I think that's what we're going to talk about with the projects we're doing at Curvebeam, go from uh, a series of slices where you're looking at pixels that represent a foot to having the computer know what it's looking at before you even look at it. Uh, that's where I see uh, AI uh, transforming what we do here in orthopedics. So you've headed up Curvebeam's explorations into what are some of the specific challenges AI can help us solve? And what is Curvebeam doing specifically? Why did we decide to go into this? And what are we building our platform to achieve? So uh, first of all, AI is a pretty broad term. Um, we will talk about this a little bit later, but there's some buzzwords like machine learning and deep learning, which are specific kinds of AI, but artificial intelligence is uh, can, uh, I guess, depending who you ask, can really cover um, almost anything a computer does. I feel like you can almost argue typing one plus one into a calculator equals two is artificial intelligence because it's uh, doing something that a human would do, a hu something a human could do or something a human could calculate for doing it in a computer. So um, we have actually been uh, working on automatic tools for a while now. We have some great tools available actually already in our CubeView software, uh, like the Tailors tool where the human just has to click a few points and then the tool automatically tells you the alignment of your foot. And when you say click a few points, you mean a few anatomical landmarks in that foot and ankle data set. Exactly. The user still has to go and identify those anatomical landmarks and uh, and identify them to the software by clicking them. So the next step, which we're working on, is having an automatic segmentation. And that really unlocks everything in terms of measurements. Because once the computer knows where each bone is, uh, cal making calculations after that is um, pretty simple. Um, you know, measuring an angle between two bones, measuring the surface area of the contact between two bones, that's all you know, well-established math that we can do. But knowing exactly where each bone is, um, and especially um, when it comes when you have such a variety of patients, you know, if every patient had the same shaped foot or a very similar shaped foot with very similar bone density, uh, this wouldn't be so hard. But there's such a variety in the types of patients we image, especially because a lot of the patients we image have pathologies or um, injuries or deformities that cause them to be uh, to vary from a normal foot. So um, using AI to identify, to segment the foot allows us to do any other kind of measurement after that. And can you, for uh, people who might not be so familiar with the term, can you explain what segmenting a foot means exactly? Sure. Um, so it's actually pretty intuitive. When you look at an uh, x-ray or a CT scan of a foot, you see a series of bones. Um, you see your metatarsals, you see your talus, you see your calcaneus. Um, but again, uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier to the computer, it's all just pixels. Um, the pixels have a location, um, an XYZ location in the volume, and they have a an intensity uh, that corresponds to their density. So a really dense bone might have a high intensity um, air, which has uh, really low density will have a low 
a density value. But so all the computer knows is where is this pixel in XYZ space and what is its density? But it doesn't know which bone that pixel belongs to. So segmentation is um, kind of your key of, of translating these pixels to which series of pixels make up each bone so that your scan is now can now be viewed as a series of bones rather than a series of pixels. And once you have this segmented foot, that's when the computer can then uh, use automatic calculations. Uh, then it's pretty much a, a, just plugging in some simple formulas from that point. You would say the first metatarsal uh, cluster or uh, compared to the second metatarsal cluster, you know, correlate those with an angle. Um, and then you have your I of A angle. And that part's easy. But the, the first part, which is getting the computer to actually identify those two separate bones, that's where the challenge has been historically, especially in the foot, which has uh, 27 uh, different bones in their, the shape and the uh, way that they're uh, uh, interlocking is quite complex. Um, segment, uh, segmentation has been around for a while. It's nothing new. It's just been a manual process. Can you describe when you're segmenting a foot manually, what that looks like, what that entails? Yes, uh, for a CT scan, it's a pretty involved process. Uh, there's uh, a few different softwares that are available to use, but they all do, uh, they all have a similar process where uh, slice by slice, you'll, you'll view one slice of your image and you will uh, basically draw or identify the outline of every bone um, in that slice. Um, so for example, if you're higher up on the foot, you will, you will, your slice will just have your tibia and fibula. That's a slightly easier one, uh, but you have to draw a line around the tibia. You'd have to draw a line around the fibula and then go down to your next slice. Um, again, I'm talking in terms of axial slices. You could do it in any direction. It's usually done in the axial direction, um, but uh, you'd have to identify every outline of every bone and every slice. Um, there, are some, there are some semi-automatic methods that, for example, might give you a guess based on the density or something. It might guess these are my outlines, but uh, again, because patients' feet vary so much, um, the guesses are usually wrong, so they might make it a little faster, but you still have to go and correct the guesses. There's also, um, make it faster, you could also maybe do every five slices and then have the computer guess an in interpolation between the on the slices in between. So if you know in um, one slice, my talus is here, five slices down, it's here, you can kind of uh, guess or interpolate what's in between. But um, again, that's uh, just because of the variety of patients um, and the variety of images that can still have errors. So going through every slice and identifying every bone in every slice. Um, for someone who's experienced with the software and good at this, it can take, um, from what I've heard, uh, three to four hours. Wow. So it's not something that you could, in an everyday clinical practice, do for every single one of your patients. It would just be completely impractical and impossible. Yes, it would be completely impractical. The only scenarios this is really done in right now is research at, you know, universities or research labs where they have uh, someone who could do this. But yeah, uh, for a daily practice, you're seeing dozens or more patients a day. 
there's, it's just not feasible. So you described that there are some semi-automatic uh, methods in which this can be done, but what you decided uh, to do was to find a completely automatic way so that there was no human intervention required to take this three to four hour process and make it pretty much instantaneous. So how did you go about that? What was your methodology? Um, how do you even begin to do something like that? Right. So um, as I've kind of mentioned, there's ways you can do semi-automatic methods that make guesses based on pixel values or densities, but because the foot varies so much, it's, it's hard to use a method like that that's right all or almost all of the time. So, so because there's no simple formula that's going to work well on all feet, we decided to use um, what's kind of one of the buzzwords these days, um, machine learning or deep learning, um, but it's really um, the perfect solution to this type of application um, because um, machine learning and deep learning specifically um, functions like the human brain. Um, just to give a quick background, um, again, artificial intelligence is a really broad term and can kind of be applied to anything a computer is doing automatically. Uh, machine learning is a subset of that where you have known inputs and known outputs and you're trying to, uh, or you're finding a way to map the known inputs to known outputs um, using some type of mathematical model. Um, and uh, deep learning is a subset of that where the model you use is called a neural network. And that's uh, modeled after uh, the human brain where uh, in your brain, you have an input signal and it goes through a series of layers and um, each layer does uh, some processing and your output um, is, a, is a result that's understanding exactly what your input means. This method really made sense for this project because when you have such a variety of shapes, sizes, densities, pathologies in feet, the only way to really understand them is to, to understand that the way the human would, where you look at the foot in context of a lot of prior knowledge. You know, you have prior knowledge of what a foot might look like and prior knowledge of what different um, pathologies might cause uh, the foot to look like. Um, you have knowledge of what it looks like when two bones overlap. So just because you have overlap doesn't mean that it's not two separate bones. Um, the same way kind of a child goes out into the world and looks at things and hears and smells and uh, tastes things and slowly learns to put together what these things are. The, the way a child learns how to speak, they just hear people talking and I hear it in context of uh, what's around them and what they're doing, they slowly start to figure out, okay, this is what this means. And that's what a neural network does. We feed it lots of examples of feet and tell it, you know, in this example, my first metatarsal is here, but in this example, my first metatarsal is here. And um, you teach it uh, using all these examples and it slowly starts to make these connections itself and learn what the foot is. And um, the neural network, uh, is composed of a bunch of different layers and 
um, we don't exactly know what's going on in every layer, kind of the way we don't understand what's going on in every signal in the human brain, but we understand that it's being that it's able to map these inputs to outputs. Um, and then even more specifically, for image processing, um, it's common to use a type of neural network called a convolutional neural network, in which the layers um, apply different filters to help detect things in images. So um, one layer might be, for example, an edge detector, where you have a, uh, a matrix of numbers that organized uh, to represent an edge, um, where values on one side of the edge are high and values on the other side of the edge are low. And so when you multiply these values to your image, it's um, the output is able to understand if there's an edge there or not. So uh, convolutional networks are common in image processing, a lot of like face recognition software, um, uh, self-driving cars that are constantly viewing a camera feed to drive. They're using convolutional networks, convolutional neural networks. So um, that was a, uh, a natural method to follow. Um, and then there's a lot of work happening uh, in the AI deep learning uh, convolutional CNN. Um, CNN is short for convolutional neural network. There's a lot of work happening in that space. So um, we did a literature review of the latest and greatest algorithms that have worked, um, specifically focusing on what's been working in medical imaging. Again, there wasn't uh, really many publications or really any at all on the foot specifically, but there were publications of uh, analyzing medical images of other parts of the body and doing a literature review of what worked and why that gave a good idea of some types of models to try. So after completing this literature review, what was the process that you and your team came up with to teach our algorithm? Sure. Um, and I also want to quickly acknowledge I was working with a team of AI experts. So um, although I do have some background in this um, field, I was working with some experts who are um, well beyond me in their um, understanding and abilities um, in this to work on this type of project. Um, but yeah, the uh, literature review gave us a few ideas for models to try. And what's, what's very typical in um, machine learning or deep learning is to go ahead and try models because there's so many variables and um, when it comes to deep learning, especially with all these hidden layers, there's so many unknowns that it's really hard to, you know, um, make an analytical decision on which model is going to work best. It really comes down to kind of guess, test, and revise. So um, running a few data sets through different models and seeing which ones work better and um, when, and also looking at which ones don't work, looking at what types of uh, which types of data sets are having more problems and seeing maybe uh, is it seeing if there's a specific reason why one model isn't working. Uh, but uh, I guess I should backtrack a second. Um, to train the model, we have to have uh, data examples of scans to uh, give to the model to learn. And so that was really the first step. Um, collecting this data, uh, we were able to acquire um, a large number of data sets from um, some clinical practices, of course, 
all privacy, HIPAA um, requirements. Um, everything was completely anonymized before it was uh, used. But uh, getting this large number of data sets, and then the data sets have to be annotated um, because before, when we're teaching the machine, we have to give it a known input and a known output, and it kind of has to learn what's in between that. And uh, the known output is what we were talking about earlier, that manually segmented scan. That's, you know, that's what we're trying to come up with. Um, so we had to manually segment hundreds of scans so that we could give the machine those examples. So that was a huge effort there just to collect the data and then to manually um, segment it. Um, the machine learning or yeah, the machine learning term is um, annotate the data. Uh, data annotation is a big part of uh, AI and machine learning. So that was the first big step. And uh, also when collecting our data, there were lots of factors to consider. We wanted to have a variety of patient age, um, ages, sizes, um, gender, pathologies. Um, one thing is we uh, also collected a bunch of scans that had hardware in it so that we could train the algorithm to learn to identify hardware. So uh, collecting a variety of data that represents, that's really gonna represent your population that you want it to work on, uh, that's important. Uh, so once we had all that, we went back to the algorithm, we uh, tested a few different algorithms that we um, thought might work well and saw which ones were performing best and looked at which cases were uh, not working as well and seeing if it was something related to the data versus something related to uh, the algorithm. Um, and yeah, we really just saw what worked best. There were also practical considerations. You know, um, you could have an algorithm that works algorithm that works really well, but if could, but could require a lot of processing time and processing power. Um, our data sets are really large images. They're about half a gig per data set. So um, as is common in image processing, we don't um, necessarily process it at full resolution. We might downsize it a little bit and process it at that resolution and then scale that result back to the original resolution. So all those types of considerations of um, time and processing power um, were also um, critical because this is something that we want to provide a practice to use. They can upload a scan, get it scanned, and get it back. So this isn't something that needs to work in a lab that can take five hours to run. This is something that we are, you know, trying to commercialize. So that was also a consideration. So um, talking about commercialization, what are some of the applications uh, long term once this is validated? And I would like to come back and talk about the validation process, but uh, once this algorithm is kind of perfected and uh, approved for clinical use, what are some of the possibilities for this? So possibilities are really endless. Um, some of the immediate ones that we're interested in are um, some um, applications that we've already been working on before this project. For example, the TALIS measurement that measures the overall alignment of the foot in 3D, which uh, is really revolutionary because um, before our weight-bearing CT scanners, it was not this wasn't possible to do in 3D. Um, so having that done automatically, where you scan a patient and your output, uh, you can immediately see this is your foot alignment. Some other measurements 
that we've been working with clinically are, um, there's the Harmony measurement created by Dr. Cesar de Cesar Neto, um, which looks at the condition of the midfoot arch, which is something that really hasn't been understood well uh, because it really couldn't be imaged well with 2D X-ray. So um, getting an automatic analysis of that arch. Uh, also looking at uh, the syndesmosis joint um, between the tibia and fibula, um, which can ankle instability. That would be a volume measurement. So measuring the volume of uh, the space between those two bones and um, being able to measure um, a foot that's normal versus a foot with, with ankle instability, doing that automatically. We've had requests to do automatic measurements from the very beginning. Um, something as simple as the angle between the first and second metatarsal, which tells you um, if your foot has a hallus valgus condition. Um, that sounds simple, but um, again, because feet vary so much, it's hard to do automatically. But um, uh, Dr. Richter in Germany has been um, advocating to have that done automatically for a long time. and. This will finally enable us to do that accurately on any patient. Also, things like joint space mapping. So looking at um, the space between two bones and how uh, throughout the surface of that the bones in that space, um, how far they are, where the, where the joint is getting really close. That's also something that um, can be done in the knee. The project so far has been focused on the foot, but we are going to extend it to all the uh, extremities we image. So being able to uh, do a map of the joint space in the knee, that's huge because um, a reduction of that uh, space in the knee is an indication of arthritis. So those are just a few examples. Um, but the possibilities, again, are really infinite. And there's, uh, I'm sure, many things that we don't even know that we want yet because we're learning so much about the lower extremities just by having the ability to image them in a 3 position. So it's already such a new area. And um, so I'm sure lots of other new um, clinical applications that develop as we continue to work in this field. So this all sounds very exciting. And if I was an orthopedic surgeon, I would be uh, ecstatic about the fact that I could push a button and I could have all of my angle measurements done for me uh, right away. But I would also probably be hesitant and maybe a little bit cautious because how do I know this is accurate? How do I trust this machine? Um, I'm going to have to make real clinical decisions based on these measurements, real surgical decisions. So how can a surgeon have confidence that this is going to be accurate? After all, it is a machine. And how can you trust it as much as or even more than a human? Right, that's a really important question, and um, it's even something to consider when we uh, go to get this approved by the FDA. That's something they're going to want to have us prove as well. So um, there's a couple sides to this. There's the um, deep learning um, analytical side of validating our results, and that's using um, common methods of for example, in image processing, a lot of times you use the IOU, which is the intersection over union metric, where I will look at how my algorithm performs compared to how it's expected. So if I know that my calcaneus covers this many pixels, I'll look at which pixels my algorithm uh, detected. And um, 
I'll look at the intersection, which is how many pixels they both detected as the calcaneus versus the union, which is um, the pixels that they each independently detected. And we want to have a high intersection where my expected outcome and my calculated outcome um, are really similar. So that's a metric that's used to evaluate the different algorithms we're trying. Um, uh, the concept of machine learning in general is based upon minimizing loss. Um, any machine learning algorithm is trying to minimize a loss function. So it's saying, I know this is what I expect. And so if my algorithm is 100% correct, there's zero loss. If it's a little bit incorrect, there's a little bit of loss. If it's really incorrect, there's a lot of loss. And then um, you are going to be iterating again and again, trying to minimize how much your algorithm is incorrect. So uh, that's, you know, that's just a general concept of machine learning. Um, so that's more on the, uh, the algorithm side. But then, of course, um, it's also really important to have this validated clinically. So um, we are uh, going to provide to clinicians the ability to review the segmentation in um, NPR screens, where the segmentation will be overlaid on the NPR images, and they can scroll through them and look at um, every slice and make sure that they agree with the segmentation. Um, and we're also going to have tools where they can make, um, where they can compare their manual measurements to our automatic ones. So they can record what they got manually, and then we can compare that to what we got automatically and, you know, see how much they differ. Um, and, um, you know, if there is a big discrepancy, uh, try to um, mitigate that. So, uh, yeah, the algorithm itself, the again, the, the underlying concept of machine learning is to minimize errors. But of course, that's only based on the training data. So um, your algorithm can only perform as well as it's trained. And so once it gets out in the real world to all these different clinicians, you know, there's always, uh, it's a continuous process. And the FDA has acknowledged that it actually has um, a special guidance document for how it's going to deal with artificial intelligence approvals. And it totally acknowledges that it's an ongoing process. The more data you have, the more your algorithm might evolve, um, the more new insights you might learn. So uh, an ongoing validation to continuously make sure that things are complete, things are um, accurate is um, part of the strategy as well. So we might have uh, listeners to this episode who would be interested in getting involved in that research phase uh, and helping to test the algorithm. Uh, if someone is interested, uh, how can they get in touch? You can always email us at info at curvebeam.com. Um, we are uh, currently working on the research phase and uh, deploying the software to a limited number of users to do some of these uh, tests and validations. So um, yeah, we could certainly use some more candidates who are interested in helping out with this. And so yeah, we'd be happy to talk to you if you're interested. Great. Well, Studi, this has been immensely fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit the efforts of you and your team. And we can't wait to see uh, what how this product evolves and when it's available for commercial use, uh, all the different ways that it's leveraged in foot and ankle. If anyone's interested in getting in contact with you specifically, how can they reach out? Um, 
Sure. Well, you can email me at studi.sing at curvebeam.com. That's S-T-U-T-I dot S-I-N-G-H at curvebeam.com. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, so you can connect with me there. And uh, yeah, I would be more than happy to uh, talk to anyone who's interested in um, learning project. Great. Well, thank you so much. And uh, again, we look forward to seeing how this AI product develops. And we hope you have a great rest of your day until the next episode. Great. Thank you.